My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the season nine, season nine premiere of FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24-7. I cannot believe we're on season nine. I always say that every season, but I can't. It's just great to be here. Every season gets better. This season's going to be very, very good. I promise you that. We've got great guests coming on. And I wanted to start with a really, I think, phenomenal guest, somebody who I super respect, David Hogg. So the backstory on this episode and why David is here is because David, when he was a senior at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, was there on February 14, 2018, when a shooter killed a bunch of his classmates and he survived. And then with his friends from school started this this amazing movement called March for Our Lives that has been a major player in the discussion around gun violence in America. And I was watching TV earlier in 2022 when the Uvalde shooting happened in Texas, the school shooting that was just so horrific. And David was on the news and I just was watching him and thinking how effective he is. And so I went to his Twitter page and I sent him an email because there was a little email there. And I said, you should come up Homo Sapiens. And I never heard back. Like, listen, David's a busy, busy guy. He's a college student. He's an activist. So I wasn't offended, but I just sort of forgot about it. And then months later, I got an email from somebody who works with David saying, hey, sorry, we didn't see this. We'd love to have David come on the show. And I said, great, let's book this. And so I just was really excited to speak to him because I think he's done an amazing amount of work in this space. And it's not easy. And as we'll get into it, there's a lot of tools on this. And so I thought it was a perfect person to come on and launch season nine. We have a double episode because there was so much to talk about. And we're just going to get into his journey, what he's learned. And I think it's a great lesson for all of us as we get into this new year, figuring out what are we going to do with our lives? Like maybe we'll engage in the fight that David's leading. Maybe we'll lead other fights in our communities, but you can't just sit by and watch the world go by. You have to be a FOMO sapiens. You have to be an entrepreneurial thinker and go out and use your skills, your talent, your hustle to make the world a better place. So a little bit more about David. As I mentioned, on February 14, 2018, his life changed forever. As a senior in high school, he lost friends, classmates, and teachers to gun violence in his school. Committed to becoming an agent for change, he joined with his friends from high school to co-found March for Our Lives, now one of the world's largest youth-led movements. And five weeks after the shooting, March for Our Lives mobilized one of the biggest demonstrations in the nation's history. And since then, David has traveled around the country, meeting with impacted families and diverse communities to talk about gun safety, to improve his own knowledge, and to share what he has learned, and also talk about the politics of ending gun violence. Now, he is also co-written a book, Hashtag Never Again, with his younger sister, Lauren, that was a New York Times bestseller, and he's currently a student at Harvard University. Now, as I mentioned, this is a two-part episode. We'll be running part two next week. But in part one, we're going to talk about a couple of different things. Number one, we're just going to talk about you know what happened on that day at David's high school and how he processed that experience and you know, how he lived through it and what he learned and how it kind of related to who he was as a person at the time. 
We're going to also talk about how that turned into this massive movement. Like, how do you go from living through this really terrible thing and then quickly turning it around to a, a movement that really, you know, became a national conversation, mobilized millions of people, and started to really drive impact and change? And then we're going to talk about sort of the tactics of being an activist, you know, running that sort of social media kind of activism versus doing the day-to-day -day work of you know going to Congress and all the sort of like organizing. So we'll get into all that today. Next week, we're going to talk about more of what sort of David has learned and his journey and what he's thinking about now. So really fascinating just how he has put himself out there. And by the way, has taken a lot of heat and attacks from people and just it's, it's kind of messy. And so he's going to talk realistically and sort of personally about what that is like. And so I just think you're going to have a great time with this episode. It's a serious episode, of course, but David is so smart. He is just a person who I think offers all of us lessons about how we can make change in the world around us. And so with that, I will get to my small ask of the week. It is small, but it's important. Think about something that matters to you, something that in your community isn't going well or that you want to change. And you know, thinking about what David says and listening to him, figure out if you can step up and make a change, make that thing better. All right, so let's get on to the interview. As you know, I'd like to start every interview with the same question. And so I started our conversation by asking David this, what's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? There's a lot of formative decisions, obviously, but I think probably the one that comes to mind first was the decision to speak up after everything happened happened at my high school in 2018 mm -hmm. after the shooting in Parkland. Um, and knowing that, you know, that there's no way that I can speak just for my community because no single person can speak for their community entirely. Mm -hmm. um, Cause there's always going to be differences in opinion and people affected differently. But I think probably the most important decision that I made that's brought me to this point was speaking on the first place that really I was driven by because of what my sister had gone through that day. Um, she was a freshman, she was 14 years old and she, we would come to find out after the final death count came in that she lost four friends that day. Mm. And I think for me, it was more a decision of speaking out for those who couldn't so that they could speak to the media on their own terms when the time came instead of, you know, the media dictating whether or not their story was worth covering or not, depending on, you know, how fast the news cycle would move on. Let's talk about what, you know, kind of your life before. I mean, this, you know, this was on February 14th, 2018. Let's go back to February 13th, 2018. Like what was, what was like life like for you at that time? Like, what were you into kind of, what was the, who were you as a person? Um, I would say I was just a, a nerdy uh, high school student who uh, was really interested in different aspects of journalism, aerospace engineering, and uh, some botany stuff. So I, I did a lot of stuff on campus where I was president of our drone racing team um, that we had started, uh, I think it was that year. Actually, it was that year, I'm pretty sure. And then, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of stuff in our uh, high school garden working on different aquaponics and hydroponic systems. I had just finished my Eagle Scout project hmm. um, the weekend before the shooting and didn't end up getting it for a multitude of reasons because of everything that happened afterwards. It was just insanely busy and stuff like that. And yeah, 
you know, I, I definitely wasn't your stereotypical high school student. I didn't have a ton of friends because I moved in the middle of my freshman year from Los Angeles out to Parkland. And the reason why we did that is because my father has early onset Parkinson's disease. And we feared that we couldn't afford to live in California anymore yeah. if he had to medically retire, mm. uh, which really drove our decision, along with having family out in South Florida, uh, to move out there. Um, so I would say just being a normal, nerdy uh, high school student with, you know, a couple of good friends, but not not a ton. Yeah, it sounds like me in high school, um, except that I wore blazers around and tried to be president of everything. So... <laughs> <laughs> Look how that worked out. Uh, I was reading as I was preparing to talk to you today. Um, you know, we we've all followed this. I mean, this is I mean, this is an epidemic, and the particular situation in Parkland is such a huge story in the U.S. But one thing that I read about that I didn't know uh, was that you used your cell phone to record the scene in real time and interview other students that were hiding with you in a closet, and to leave a record in the event that you guys didn't survive that day. And that really struck me. Um, what do you remember kind of what went through your head? Why you decided to do that? Like, what was the decision behind that in, uh, on that day? Well, I think more than anything, it was first and foremost, it was just instinctual to me mm -hmm. um, because I had always used my camera as a student journalist as a way of getting out of awkward situations or times when I didn't really know what to do with myself by telling other people's stories. You know, my camera was my excuse to be anywhere. I didn't need, you know, a friend, you know, when I was a sophomore or a freshman or whatever to go to a football game, I could just, you know, bring my camera and get in for free as a student journalist that was, you know, covering it or whatever. And I think in the, in the moment that, you know, the shooting started happening, I think a lot of us still thought, I know a lot of this thought, at least in the very beginning, that it, it was probably a drill. And as it quickly, you know, became real to us that it, that it wasn't, um, we started, I started interviewing my classmates because I knew from my experience in speech and debate, having to argue on both sides of universal background checks, uh, school resource officers, and other things like that along with my education from TV production and just watching news my, pretty much my entire life since probably before second grade. Um, just, you know, my family was never one that sat down around the dining room table and talked to each other so much. Uh, it, we were much more one that, that sat down and watched 60 minutes together. Um, and I think for me, it was just instinctual. It was a way of grounding myself and taking, in some ways, taking myself out of the situation so that I could find some some level of calmness in a situation where so much is out completely outside of our control. And I knew that if, you know, thankfully our building wasn't the one that ended up being where the shooting happened, mm -hmm. but we did hear gunshots because they echoed, you know, throughout the different buildings because Parkland is an out or Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in Parkland is a outdoor school. So it's not like your stereotypical Northeastern high schooler, for example, where everything's all under the same roof. It's not. There are multiple buildings. And uh, in our case, you don't know if there are multiple shooters. You don't know if there are bombs on campus. You don't know what there is. And knowing all of that, I just started interviewing my classmates so that if 
we did die in our classroom, hopefully our voices would carry on so that the common, you know, argument that the NRA uses could be defeated, which is that you can't talk about this because you're politicizing this. They w- I knew that they wouldn't be able to say that if the very kids who died in the shooting said you need to do something about this and change these laws. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. Yeah, it's so true. It's, it is, you know, it's this instinctual kind of element. Plus, I guess your realization, even before you were actually, you know, sort of quote unquote, an activist that you kind of knew inside of you what you needed to do. I'm curious, like, as you talk to people, I mean, you, 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 you're an activist, obviously you talk to lots of people and I'm sure people ask you like, how do you prepare for that kind of moment? I mean, how do you get ready to make better decisions when your life is in danger, like, is there anything we can do or is it simply that just sort of autopilot takes over? You know, I, I I really think it's something that, you know, I think it's kind of like athletes being in the zone a little bit. Like you kind of go to whatever your default is where you've been. And for me, that's kind of what happened. It's, you know, it's a little bit like I, uh, I'm taking a class this semester on Chinese ethics and politics. And one of the things that we learned about was, um, the Tao Te Ching, uh, which is one of the foundational texts of Taoism. And, you know, the whole idea behind it is basically finding the way mm. and practicing the action of, you know, inaction, basically the, the action of doing nothing. And I think what I, what I learned from that is that, you know, in the text, it talks a lot about like cultivating um, and just following that way. And I, I think it's a little bit like being in the zone for athletes. And in my case, it was, kind of like just going back to the default of what I had always done, which was storytelling. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Now, so in the next year, you and your classmates came together and, you know, you, you began this, this journey, which really is, you know, puts you on the map is why people know who you are and the work that you're doing. Most people remember you from March for our lives, but you know, the thing about America right now is that there are shootings, you know, all the time, right? There are shootings. It's like one worse than next. And it, it just feels like despite that, it's like, you know, I remember back in, in under the Obama years when there was the Sandy Hook shooting. And I remember thinking, well, if this doesn't get us some sort of sensible curves on gun violence, like nothing will. And of course it didn't work. And yet somehow it feels like in some ways, the movement broke through in a different way with you and your classmates. And I want to talk about that because, because so many people try to launch 
uh, activism movements and they've totally failed. And, and you guys broke through in a different way. And so how did you get started? Like what, what were the first steps you took to even figure out how you should approach speaking out on this problem? Well, for one, I think it was, uh, immediately taking away the, taking the microphone away from the talking heads on the news that had never been to Parkland mm -hmm. and would just continuously turn this into an endless debate where nothing happens and let the students who have gone through this and the generation who had gone through this speak for themselves. I think that's, that's the real reason why Parkland was different was for the first time, unlike, you know, I was in sixth grade when Sandy Hook happened. Mm -hmm. At that time, the generation that had grown up post Columbine, I was born a year after Columbine, the generation that had grown up a year, you know, or in the years following Columbine was not old enough really to speak up for themselves. And they also didn't feel like they would have to because we unfortunately uh, falsely believed that we had a competent government mm -hmm. that would do its job and protect the domestic tranquility. Mm -hmm. And what I think what made Parkland different was that it had happened at a time in our lives where we were just old enough to have gone through these things our entire lives, school, you know, school shooter drills, you know, uh, seeing shooting after shooting after shooting after shooting almost every day um, in the form of individual shootings and, you know, at least every month, unfortunately, in the form of these mass shootings. And with Parkland, it was the first time that our generation was old enough and had gone through this at a high school at this scale uh, and we were able to actually speak for ourselves. I think that's part of what made it different. And I, I think going beyond that, the reason why it also was different was, frankly, the enormous privilege that we had. The fact that our community, you know, it, the average income, median household income in Parkland is, I'm pretty sure, well north of $100,000 a year. We are a very privileged community where this does not happen on a daily basis. So when it does, it is newsworthy. And unfortunately to the communities that this happens to daily, predominantly black and brown communities, uh, when it does happen and it's outside of school where the vast majority of young people who die from gun violence die, it does not break through the news in the same way at all. And I, I think in a, in a weird way, in a kind of the metaphor that I would think of is it's, you can have, you know, one of the greatest ideas, for example, in business in the, you know, ever. But really, if you don't have the, the connections to investors and capital to be able to scale quickly and sustainably, uh, it, it's a lot harder to become successful because there's so many other roadblocks that can get in your way, even if the idea is really good. And sure, you can push a lot to get through those things, and surely some people do. But ultimately, most people can't because of things outside of their control. And I think in Parkland, it was a little bit like we had so much attention and so many resources that we were a lot further ahead than a lot of other, you know, social movements that take off uh, are at when we started. FOMO. FOMO. That makes a lot of sense. It, it, one of the things that kind of is really hard when you're making change, like systemic change, which this is, right? This is like a fight that feels generational um, or more. And it, it, I, I was thinking this year with the war in Ukraine, uh, you know, people are always outraged for the week, a week. And they're raising money and they're posting and they're, you know, they're, they've got their attention span. And then slowly it slips away. 
and they just forget. And it's not because people are malicious per se, but it's like it doesn't affect them or they got, you know, other things to focus on or they're, who knows, a new season of something is out on Netflix, whatever it is, keeping things in the present, keeping people focused on these huge problems is really hard. And I guess when you're in the, the struggle for curbing gun violence, one of the things that happens is there's so much violence that it's constantly something new coming on. But how do you, I mean, as you guys thought about this, like how did you keep keep going, keeping this on the front page, just keeping focus on this when, you know, we live in a world of so many distractions where people just can't even commit to focusing on anything. Well, I think what we did is we gave the media more stuff to cover mm -hmm. to extend the, to extend the, you know, number of pages, I guess you could say in our chapter of that of 2018, uh, in the news cycle. And the way we did that was we didn't just only talk about, you know, how horrible everything was that our classmates, our teachers, our, and the educators went through and these families have gone through. Um, that, that's almost always what happens. And then it kind of just ends there and fades away. It goes stale, unfortunately, because that's the world that we live in is mass violence has become so, so normalized yeah. that it's, it barely breaks through the news or stays in the news for longer than two weeks. What we did is we immediately mobilized and showed up to give an extension to the story, a continuation to the story. We showed up at our state legislature, I think it was within a week of the shooting happening or, or two weeks of the shooting happening and immediately put pressure on the state legislature, all of, you know, a lot of whom were up for reelection or were running for Senate you know, we're, we're going to announce a run for Senate soon, like Rick Scott, or then Governor Rick Scott, and showed up there and showed mass protests in Tallahassee while they were in session, um, you know, only a couple months before the 2018 midterms. And then from that, we then did, you know, the march that uh, we had six weeks after the shooting in D.C., but also with 800 around the world. Um with everyday people picking it up. And I think what, what helped make that different is it got into local newsrooms and it was everyday people talking about it. Uh, so it, it was an extension of the story. I think that's how we've, we've managed to keep it on the news and stuff, you know, as long as we were able to, to change it. And then a similar thing happened this summer after Uvalde. We talked to some of the families that were out there who reached out to us and we talked to, and, and, and with families from Buffalo as well, after Uvalde had happened and we said, we want to do another march, you know, are you, are you okay with that? Or is this something that you would want because we're survivors ourselves, but we also want to let you speak for yourself. And they said, yes. And that I think helped us play a part in extending the news cycle so that, you know, these things didn't just fade away. Um, we gave more things to cover and we, it was also, you know, a couple months before the 2022 midterms. So we were able to extend the news cycle to cover these things by acting proactively off of something that we were initially reacting to, if that makes sense. And we're able to extend the amount of pressure time-wise uh, on these politicians to create this change. And that's what we did. I, I think that's part of how we, you know, we did another March this summer. It, it, it was two weeks basically after Uvalde. So of course it wasn't nearly as big as the first one. Um, but we had 450 marches around the country. And this summer we passed over 20 gun laws at the state level. 
Uh, and we got the first federal piece of gun legislation passed in 30 years. And it wasn't enough uh, at all. But even if it just saves one life, and that's our true mission here, saving lives, that is progress. So um, I think that's the main way. And the, the last thing I'll say is that overall, the big shift that the, the gun violence, gun safety prevention movement needs to make is we have to shift from being reactive to, at, you know, responding only after these things happen to being proactive and proactively showing up at every state legislature uh, before the next shooting to advocate for better funding for the communities most impacted by gun violence, to help stop people, especially young people, from wanting to pick up a gun uh, in the first place, to make sure that every community has opportunity, right? To make sure that the right laws are in place to help stop the bad guys that are often always talked about from getting guns in the first place um, and doing everything else we can to help stop this uh, violence. But we have to shift from being reactive to being proactive and showing up and putting on pressure to these states legislators every year. Yeah, you know, you, you've identified something that I think, you know, a lot of us are seeing in America, which is that the federal system is so broken that the states are where the action is. And there's more and more money flowing down into the states in the election cycle that's just making it even harder. And so you're, you've got to focus there. And that's where, the, that's where the opportunity is a lot of times because just our federal government is just so stymied. I'm curious, you know, so you do this combination in, in the work that you've done with your, with, your, um, with your collaborators, which is kind of like a mix between an inside game and an outside game. The outside game is the really public stuff. It's the media appearances. It's the marches. It's the die-ins. It's the things that mobilize other citizens to come alongside you. And there's kind of an inside game, which is meeting with lawmakers, testifying at hearings, you know, working within the system as broken as it is to try to, you know, get these laws passed. Because at the end of the day, that is kind of where the rubber hits the road. How, how have you thought about that balance? Are there trade-offs between the two or do they work perfectly together? Like what is that sort of the, the mix between those things as you, as you, as you work to make change? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure some people would argue that there are trade-offs, but ultimately I think, you know, for, for some movements, certainly they are much more, they have to be much more outside the system in order to to achieve whatever goals they want, you know, if it's cultural change or whatever it might be. But in our case, you know, our solution is partially the system, right? We're, we're talking about changing gun laws here. And if we don't fix the system that's in charge of creating and enforcing those laws in the first place, um, we're you know, we're going to have another mass shooting generation that comes along and has to continue doing this. And that's the opposite of what we want. And I, I really see everything that we do is focused on getting the results as quickly as we can to save as many lives as possible right now. Because uh, what really bothers me is knowing that, you know, I'm 22 years old. I'm going to outlive pretty much everybody in Congress. I, I'm sure that long term we are going to succeed because unfortunately these shootings are not going away until we actually do the one thing that we haven't done, which is substantially addressing the gun laws in our country. You know, we've tried putting more cops in schools like the, and they failed like the cops in Uvalde and the cop at my high school who proved only to be a coward with a gun and not a good guy with a gun. We've tried more mental health funding. We've tried every single other talking point that has been talked about and the shootings continue, right? The thing that I'm focused on is trying to stop this violence. And I know the movement is focused on is trying to stop this violence as quickly as possible, because I know when we do succeed, 
we will look back and the only question that we will have is why the hell did it take us so long? And how many people died as a result of stupid politicians with their BS talking points and, you know, all these other uh, things that got in the way of us just getting the work done and saving lives. So it has to be getting the results as quick as we can, even if it's small progress. Um, because I, I used to think when I was starting out that, you know, if we don't get everything that we want, screw it. We shouldn't get anything at all. And that's not the way that politics works in my view anymore. Uh, I had a, a mentor say to me one time that when you have 100% of the power, you can get 100% of what you want. When you have 50% of the power, you can get 50% of what you want. And that's the reality. You know, we can choose to say no to weaker policies and know that people are going to die as a result. Or we can say yes, get whatever territory we can now to get grow our power and then talk about whatever the next thing is that we can do. So that's really the approach that I've uh, started to take in terms of working inside and outside of the system. I, I really see it as in in uh, in odd years or even or you know the years before an election, uh, really focusing on nailing those state legislatures and Congress as much as possible to pass this legislation. And then after that, focusing on the outside to turn out young voters. Um, and people who care about gun violence to help change who's in government if the government itself will not change the laws. All right, everybody. That's the end of part one of my conversation with David Hogg and also the end of the season nine premiere. Thank you so much for joining. And until next week and part two of our conversation, take care of yourselves, FOMO sapiens. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.